Okay, everyone, welcome back to another sporting blog podcast. It's uh, Friday, and it seems to be traditional at the moment on Fridays. We do welcome guests from the world of sport into our virtual studio, uh, still distancing. Today, I have got with me a uh, colleague, friend, uh, work partner, um, Merrick Hayden from Revolution, um, sports marketing agency based here in the UK, but also part of a wider uh, business of Revolution in the uh, US as well. Um, hi, Merrick, how's it going? Hey, Ollie, uh, good to be with you virtually. Um, yeah, in good shape, thank you. I'm looking out of my home office window across the South Downs. I'm in deep West Sussex, but I can just see the top of the Goodwood Racecourse uh, stands and I can hear what must be some very nice uh, Ferrari vintage cars going around the Goodwood motor circuit. So I feel like I'm in the sporting world, just <laughs> everything else a little on ice. But um, uh, we yeah, are where a, we are, so making the most of it. Yeah, that's a nice view. And um, I guess actually we'll come on to uh, Goodwood specifically a bit later as it's an event that, you know, you and I, well, more you, but have been sort of indirectly involved in and directly involved in um, as one of the sort of major sporting events of the summer. Um, just for our listeners, the millions of people, no doubt, that are going to listen to this worldwide, um, just give us a little intro into Revolution. Um, if people don't don't know about sort of sports marketing and what sports marketing agencies and uh, do, just give us a quick intro into uh, Revolution and and vis-a-vis -vis what you know that actually does in in the world of sport. If you if you would. Great intro, great platform for me to give a plug. Uh, so thank you, Ollie. Yeah, Revolution. We've been going over fifteen years. We are a traditional sports marketing agency. And we say that we are uh, an integrated services agency. And what we mean by that is basically we provide three kind of core areas of services, predominantly to brands. And when we say brands, you know, we're always thinking sponsors, but actually rights holders are brands as well. They've got their own brand identity and are, are massive businesses in their own rights. So we work for both sponsors and rights holders. And the three areas for us are strategy, uh, activation, and then measurement. And strategy is everything from consulting, so coming up with ideas, whether it's about uh, going into new sponsorships or getting out of some sponsorships in some cases. Uh, it could be whether to go into different areas of sponsorship. So it could be, although we're predominantly sports, it could be going into entertainment or music or possibly into arts or culture. And then on the activation side, that's a massive wheel. And it could be anything from looking at branding to hospitality to the biggest growing area, which is the digital and social side by far. But also uh, it could be, you know, fan experience, um, experiential. That's a big growing area as well. And then the last sector or sort of a pillar of ours is measurement. You know, unless you measure stuff, unless you measure it at the beginning, and then see how you're doing at the end of a cycle, whether that's a year or an event or whatever it might be. You're not going to learn from it and see how you can be better the next time. So measurement's a huge part of what we do. And we have our own in-house uh, research department in based out of the States, actually. But we work globally. So some of our biggest clients are, for example, Shell. We monitor all their research across all their motorsports globally. So... Yeah, measurement's a big part of, of everything because that ultimately it gives your strategy and so the wheel goes round. Yeah, it's interesting because um, obviously, um, again, most of the listeners will know that um, I work in, in a sport uh, professionally as, as well as having um, this podcast and a publishing empire. Um, the measurement is something that uh, is, I think, surprisingly weak in a lot of propositions that you see and the, it, the quantitative effect of, of the work you do is sometimes hard to, to actually measure and um, as things uh, get slightly less sophisticated in terms of you know when people say we can market xyz and essentially it's you know it's pushing a bunch of, of paid social ads for 
uh, a very quick win, you know, the actual nuance of measurement is, is, is lost a little bit because it's quite easy to show a sort of false value ROI. But um, that is something that I think does think set you guys apart. And um, how have you found um, your clients? Where do they put that on their importance scale? Are they looking still generally for the sort of big wow or do they really like the getting into the detail of the, the measurement? Yeah, um, good question. So our biggest client is a uh, iconic, well-known Swiss watch manufacturer uh, based out of Geneva. Uh, they, uh, we look after them on three of their five global sports, so covering golf, uh, tennis and equestrian sports. And everything we do is measured and monitored. And we do reports after every event we do. In fact, we do one day reports, we do a report three days later, we do a report a week later, and then we do a 90 day report. So I think, as I said, you know, you've got to measure things to see where the needle moves to. I mean, there's some lovely uh, classic lines. I forget who said it. It might have been Morris Saatchi um, or one great advertising mogul to say that, you know, 50 percent of your advertising is always working. The question is, what is that 50%? And I think, you know, those days of the outdoor advertising world, um, street 48 sheets and so on, uh, are still have a place to play in brand awareness. But when you move the needle to the social and digital space, it's so much easier and more accurate to track. So one of our clients is a, an equestrian event um, held each year at uh, the Olympia Halls, the London International, it's a horse show there. And we have a fairly small, modest uh, marketing digital budget to spend with them. But the return on investment that they get in pure ticket sales, which can be tracked 100% to the social side, um, just gives them huge returns. So. It doesn't matter whether you're a global uh, watch brand or a car brand or a small event. Turning marketing spend to the social and digital side is something that you can just track so, so much more easily. And that's why it's just going to continue to grow the way it is, not least because of the way we start to consume things and how we're marketed and the fragmentation of TV and advertising uh, as, a, as a sector as a whole. But uh, that's a whole difference conversation for sure yeah and i think um it's interesting that you bring up um something with you know a, a black and white pure roi like ticket sales because that for me is you know especially someone that's involved in 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 live events and and filling one up with human beings that to me is one of the core um you know things that we want to achieve from our marketing spend um i i'm pretty you know, I'm not a big fan of, of phrases like awareness and engagement when, you know, let's say the event's already happened, you've already sold your tickets, now let's get some awareness to get people watching on TV, fine, okay. But actually, things like, well, we need to sell 20,000 tickets a day times six. I mean, there's a very, you can show a very real success rate as an agency there and, and, and hence prove your worth year on year. Um, and I think that's, that's probably a, quite a nice brief to get in a way, like having that um, sort of definitive target to, to get to. And I suppose it allows you to, there's no ambiguity when it comes to what your role is here. It's not just to make a load of noise, it's to make sure that the hall's full of people. Yeah, 100%. It's a very tangible brief. Um, and we've done that for a number of clients. And there's, well, I guess the phrase, you know, no hiding in that. Uh, the ticket sales speak for themselves. And there's so many factors that come into that, you know, whether it's the, the ticket selling partner you work with, um, someone like a ticket master and how well connected you are with them to how well your website is, to how well your uh, advertising creative is, let alone the product and, you know, things like the weather or financial climate or, you know, all those factors that go into things. Um, ultimately, ticket sales are ticket sales. So, yeah, it's a very... A very black and white uh, brief for an agency and something that you know you need to have a really good relationship with your client at that rights holder to believe in the strategy that you're going for in that in that marketing of that event 
to hit those ticket sales. You know, even pricing, a price point. We've worked with an event for five or so years in central London. And just by changing a ticket price up by, you know, five pounds or something can have a massive difference. So there's so many different points that come into to marketing events, but it's having that relationship with the rights holder to make sure that they're happy to go with you, but based on some statistical information and not just gut feel. So that's back to our back to that old word of measurement again and research and showing, you know, that the reason we are saying put that ticket price up or down by five pounds is because it's it's on statistics and looking at other events and so on and so on. So it's not just gut feel. Those those days are long, long gone, thankfully. Yep, uh, I can agree with that wholeheartedly. So um, without, I, as I mentioned just before we went live, um, don't want to dwell on this, but it's a good time talking about ticket sales and the return that brands and, and rights holders want to see out of their their, their events and activities. Uh, we got to touch on the C word, um, and we did a podcast. Or actually, our last episode was with Mike Harley, who was an owner of two F forty five fitness businesses in the UK. And we you know we ended up spending a bit longer on Corona than we wanted to, but. He runs a business that's you know directly affected by getting humans into a room, and uh, you also are in a business that's directly affected by getting humans to events and uh, so on and so forth. Um, how I mean, I guess it's reasonably obvious, but um, how has Corona affected the uh, your your sort of day to day business? Um, it's a bad word, that C word, but let's take it head on. Uh, I remember on, I think it was Thursday, the 14th of March, uh, the reality of it hitting, we were due to do an event in uh, Holland on that Friday, a Friday must've been something like the 15th of March. And, uh, we got the call from our client to say, um, don't get on the plane on Friday morning. The the event is going to be um, to be cancelled, and that that event had typically had about ten thousand uh, spectators a day, and the the Dutch uh, I guess sports council and government had been trying to still make the event work. They brought the event down to one thousand spectators, and then they brought it down to five thousand just key workers. But still, that was um, not deemed safe enough. So, so the event very sadly got got cancelled on that that date, Friday the fifteenth. And I knew uh, that that was the moment where things were going to change. And from then, the sort of events for us uh, across golf, tennis, um, equestrian, rowing, all slowly started to sort of to spiral and trickle down. So I think the next event we lost was an event in the States uh, where we worked for Jaguar Land Rover. It's uh, the Kentucky three-day event, an equestrian event out there. That got cancelled pretty soon afterwards. Then, uh, then there were the big events looming. So Wimbledon Tennis Championships, uh, the Open Golf, and pretty soon those followed. And then the, I guess the biggest in terms of prestige for us was, was Tokyo 2020. I yeah. had been um, asked to go by the IOC to, to be a deputy media manager for, for the equestrian disciplines at both the Olympics and the Paralympics. So it was an odd role for me representing Revolution, but just, just sort of myself going out there. And it was a six to seven week um, kind of job effectively. And uh, the rumors started coming around that, you know, Tokyo was under the microscope, could the games go ahead? Uh, could they go ahead if things were slightly changed? Uh, could they go ahead if there were spectators reduced and then you're into all sorts of economical models? Could the people get there? Could the teams qualify because of what was happening in the spring? And as you, and we all well know, uh, finally that decision was made that, that Tokyo would be canceled. So it's quite a sobering thought because it means I would have been there today, in fact, in the middle of Tokyo. Yeah. Yeah, uh, preparing for those games in what ten days' time with the opening ceremony on the the twenty fourth, twenty fifth of of July. So it's amazing how 
these blockbuster events just slowly dominoed one by one by one. And um, yeah, it's hit, us, it's hit us hard because a big part of our work is around the events and being on site at those events. So we're lucky that we've got some very loyal clients and some great diverse clients across many sports. But a big part of what we do is is on site. So, yeah, we've been doing lots of retained work and lots of uh, generic media consulting, uh, digital social work. But it hasn't meant that we've been on site. And that's, yeah, it's been a big, a big loss. But we're already starting to plan for things coming back. Uh, and we're keeping everything crossed that, in fact, our first event could be the U.S. Open Tennis uh, Flushing Meadows. So that would be on our calendar, the first event back in sort of, uh, well, it's end of August, which creeps into September. And then we've got the U.S. Open Golf, which is at Winged Foot in, uh, in New York, state of New York. So we're monitoring what's happening in the States very, very carefully because those two events uh, fall in there and we all know how difficult times uh, they're having in particular so yeah we're keeping fingers crossed that those two events will come come through and then yeah lots of other events uh, aside equestrian uh, rowing um, uh, yeah can you know can can other events start to come back there's there's been good green shoots for, for sure you know we saw the Bundesliga come first uh, then Premier League here has happened. We're on the eve of the Austrian Formula One Grand Prix. So keeping fingers crossed that that goes well this, this weekend for not just for Formula One, but for sports fans and for European sports. It would be great if that goes off, you know, safely um, and gets a good viewership and good uh, response back from broadcasters onto onto the global airwaves um, and across our, our digital screen. So really hoping Formula One gets a good weekend this, this weekend in Austria. And then other things will be coming back in our, in domestically here in the UK, there's talk of rugby uh, union coming back, um, hopefully in the next six weeks or so. So that'll be great and slowly things will come back steadily, but it's never gonna be the same as it was back in pre-March. It's going to be a long tail with this one and I'm sure as we get through our discussion about the fan experience and how much broadcasters uh, the importance of them will play when events do start coming back into to stadiums and arenas but yeah, yeah we've been hit hard but we've adapted yeah and um, I think uh, just touching on a couple of those points I think a lot of people who don't work in the sport industry uh, and purely with their kind of what's important in life head on um, <clears throat> will often say, well, this is, you know, not terribly important right now. People are dying, et cetera. So let's, uh, let's just not worry about sport, but the, the industry itself supports a lot of other businesses. Um, <clears throat> whether that's, you know, just looking at an event from food and beverage down to graphic design, procurement, delivery, you know, you name it, whatever it takes to put on an event. And, the, the knock-on effect of these large sporting events, specifically the, the sort of annual events like the US Open of Golf. Uh, actually, interesting fact about the US Open of Golf at Winged Foot this year, as you mentioned, and poignantly, about 60 years ago, it was 1959, uh, Charlie Sifford was the first African-American player to play in the US Open, uh, and it was at Winged Foot. So a very poignant year for the US Open to be... Mm -hmm back at Winged Foot um, with everything that's going on around the Black Lives Matter campaign, but that's a separate uh, fact of the day. Um, good yeah, knowledge, think, Ollie, good uh, knowledge. Yeah, it's a good one. I did an article about it on the blog a while back and um, I, it would have seemed timely, but yeah, Winged Foot is uh, a cool track as well. Um, what I, well, I was glad you brought on, you know, some of the, the positive side of things that are coming back because I think we know what's what's gone. Um, we know what we're going to miss. It was really strange. I was playing tennis at Queens yesterday on the grass, and you know it's the first time ever that we would have been playing on the grass in in July, sort of late June, because normally there's the tournament on there. And uh, for a club like Queens, which is although it's a private club, it doesn't have a huge massive income. Pretty much half its turnover is made up of the tournament and, and the fees from the tickets and, and the media rights and all the rest of it. So 
<clears throat> there, there are a lot of, and this goes back to my point, you know, the, the US Open and Winged Foot will make them some money. I'm sure they've got a bit anyway, but it's a huge loss for a lot of people. There's a lot of jobs that, that go. There's a lot of ancillary services that don't get hired. And people have been planning for those things. Uh, this is something you can probably elaborate on for our listeners. The, the, the runway time, as it were, to take off is, is probably longer than most people think, um, especially with live events and the combination of, of, of TV, because most people won't know how media rights are distributed, but it takes quite a while to sort these things out. So it's interesting that, let's say the US Open at Flushing, uh, the tennis, can go ahead and maybe a lot of their plans wouldn't have been affected. But, you know, can you give us an idea, you know, for, I mean, for something as gargantuanly huge as the Olympics, how many years planning go into that? I mean, from your perspective, how, how far ahead were you looking at that? Oh, I mean, uh, the Olympics is probably the biggest of all events, uh, for sure. I mean, that planning would have started the day that Tokyo won its bid. And it might have even started before then, because the government uh, in Japan would have had to have had the money committed, and it would have had to have had infrastructures ready and when i say infrastructures i mean literally train lines uh road systems um uh airports i mean literally would have had to have had long-term eight-year plans plus ready in anticipation for them being awarded those games so yeah the the olympics is by far and away the biggest global sporting planning event just because of the depth and variety and when i say that i mean the the summer olympics um and i'm sure the the winter olympics isn't that far behind just going back to a golfing uh story or or, or sport and analogy uh to to perhaps give some listeners some of the things that you don't ordinarily think about the Ryder cup so the Ryder cup and Bizarrely, the Ryder Cup cycle means that this year it's in the States and it was due to be in Whistling um, Straits, which is basically near Chicago. And it hasn't been announced yet, but I think we're on the verge of it any any day now that um, I think sadly the Ryder Cup will be postponed this year and it'll be moved back to, to next year which in itself is a whole topic because of the knock-on effects. But just hear me out that uh, Whistling Straits would have planned, again, this event for four, six, eight years in advance. And so just take that golf club in itself, let alone the local community who would have made money from hotels, bars, taxis, F&B, um, to the airports with hire cars, to all the things that it trickles back down to. But just take the golf course on its own. When any big golf course hosts an event, whether it's um, something like the Ryder Cup, what typically happens is that those 18 holes that are played on that course become known as, you know, the 2020 Ryder Cup course. And as soon as the Ryder Cup has finished and moves out of town, uh, give it a few weeks and the public or the members and public can start playing that course and it's marketed as you know the 2020 Ryder Cup course and people will fly in from all over the country and all over the world indeed to go and play those very holes where you know Tiger Woods and uh, leading players will have played their shots into those greens and they want to try and emulate those Ryder Cup players so the legacy in terms of financial bookings um, is huge. So if the Ryder Cup, which it's very, very expected to do any second, announces it's going to be postponed a year, that means there's going to be a year of those bookings disappeared. So in terms of cash flow, that club has now got to manage its cash flow because it will have spent a fortune, no doubt, in infrastructure and updating and making its its clubhouse its course its bunkers its fairways uh, its restaurants whatever it might be to 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 be open to the world's uh, media and to the world's spectators and to the world's best golfers 
So all of a sudden they'll have paid all that money getting it ready and thinking that you know they would have had the booking fees from all those golfers, but now that's not going to happen for a year. So they're going to have to adjust their golfing uh, financial internal budgets. So there are my point is there are so many you know deep streams that people don't think of and the knock-on effects that um, you know merchandise. There's going to be I don't know how much. Uh, branded uh Ryder Cup 2020 you know head covers and towels and all of the pin flags and what's going to happen to all of that I I think everyone's seen Wimbledon Wimbledon had its you know it's very famous um towels that it has each year well of course all of those are on the marketplace now maybe they're quite a unique buy that you you buy the Wimbledon 2020 towel that never was sort of thing but yeah my point is you know there were deep deep revenue streams and implications when an event gets cancelled, a major event. Um, yeah, and it's tough. It's pretty tough on on company brands and organisations. So, yeah, um, let's try and pick the uh, the positives out of the, of the restart. And um, let's call it a restart and, and assume that we don't have the kind of um, second wave pandemic that's going to close these events down but for the foreseeable future we're not going to have a live audience I certainly don't think anything this year and I imagine that for the sake of planning and and everything most events are going to just say look let's let's just can the audience idea and see what we can do online Um, for the events like the US Open that will go ahead um, or hope to go ahead but without the crowd can you sort of maybe elaborate on on how brands and indeed the rights holder might be looking at, at the fan experience for an event like that. Because one of the things I guess that people don't often take into account is that the fan experience and their positive um, reporting of, of watching a sporting event does directly or can rather directly affect um, a sponsor or partners. Um, you know, reason to want to keep sponsoring it this year, next year, and the year after. If there's no fans at the the US Open uh, on Centre Court, the Arthur Ashe Court, I believe it is, um, how are those brands, uh, those sponsor-type brands, going to get their value out of the event, do you think? Yeah, it's a really big, um, it's a really big challenge, uh, for sure. I guess my my first answer to that is it depends on what type of brand uh, that sponsor is. If it's a FMCG consumer led brand, then for sure, you know, say it's a um, carbonated drink, uh, let's call it. You know, if it's a carbonated drink, you could guarantee that they are going to have pouring at that event. They are going to have uh, branded giveaways. There will be some type of fan experience um, around the outside of, let's say, your tennis example, around those tennis courts. There would be, you know, something going on that would give you the opportunity as that brand to touch and give your uh, fans an experience hands-on of that, whether it's, you know, playing a tennis game to win product or to giveaways of branded products, whether it's, you know, caps or fans or um, sun cream or whatever it might be, something that's that's tangible. If it's a non-FMCG, a very corporate brand, let's say it's something like, um, let's pick the most extract, uh, abstract brand I could think. So in golf, uh, DP World, uh, that's DP is the Dubai Ports. So an enormous organization, obviously based out of Dubai, but has other port businesses with um, essentially big boats and cargoes going going in and out of it. Well, they're a big sponsor of golf. They have their own tournament, uh, season-ending tournament in Dubai, which is typically in November. They've actually moved it to December. So if it's something like, you know, DP World, that's very hard for them to suddenly react um, at an event where, they haven't got uh, where they haven't got fans and they haven't got a product that they can even touch with them as well. So the ways around that, I would say, Oli, are use things like ambassadors. Um, and I think if I'm right, 
DP World. I'm giving them a good plug here. I think they have um, a golfers uh, as ambassadors, and I think they have um, a Renault Formula One driver. So it's about you know being innovative and using your ambassadors in a different way. So so take again that that tennis example. Perhaps um, you know if there's a brand as un FMCG as something like a DP World or even a bank, let's say, uh, which are big traditionally big sponsors in in the corporate uh, world and in the sports world, then suddenly something like a, a brand ambassador, an athlete, a playing athlete, can give you huge context. So if we rolled that forward, um, you know, what would you be? You'd be at the uh, US Open Flushing Meadow and you would have perhaps a player that's giving you um, maybe an insight into how they warm up. Uh, maybe they give a tour with a, a Facebook Live type experience of coming into the to the courts and going into the changing rooms and you know a very different experience that people are having to think of innovatively and in a different way maybe it's them um, giving a small commentary on you know how they're planning to prepare for that match that afternoon or the, the coming week or something like that so I think essentially what I'm saying is you know depending on what the brand is whether it is FMCG or corporate it's about coming up with new ideas, new experiences that haven't been looked at before. And sometimes they are just um, the most simple and the most plain examples, because often those are, are very good too. So I, I know from a, a golfing, um, another golfing example closer to home, uh, we would be getting ready for the BMW PGA Championship at Wentworth. Yeah, and uh, BMW obviously a big sponsor of that. They would have traditionally a huge village uh, in the centre of, of of sort of Wentworth, where they would be showcasing all their new cars and products that would have come out this year. And there would be a big big VIP hospitality area. And if you are a BMW driver, you can, uh, for example, have forward parking, so you'd be in one of the car parks closest to. To the clubhouse so that would be an advantage and something tangible if when you get into the golf club and you have uh, your golf key your car keys you can present those to to the bmw sort of experience and they let you in and you can have a special viewing areas and things like that this year that that's just not going to happen there won't be a village of any scale because there probably won't be the massive spectators if any at all so how does a brand like uh, BMW react to that and what experience can they give back well luckily you know BMW is a is a has got a tangible product it's cars so I would imagine that they will very strategically place those cars around each of the holes and around each of the T block areas so I'm sure we would see as they do on some uh, golf events you know placing their cars very strategically around the golf course so there's some some product placement, but I'm sure they'll think more creatively beyond that. And I'm sure there will be shots of, for example, golfers arriving into the golf course in their uh, products. So in a BMW product, maybe every time somebody comes to get golf clubs out of, um, you know, to be delivered into the course, they're coming out the boot of a BMW. I'm giving lots of good, uh, page 101 um, activations here, but yeah, you, you take my point. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, there's, there's ways... Sure the guys from BMW listen to this and you might get a phone call. <laughs> <laughs> but there's, there's ways of doing this and I'm sure they'll do it with players and ambassadors because again, in times like these, uh, the athletes and ambassadors, whether they're either playing ambassadors or, um, or legends, let's call them of the game, ex-players, who can give some... Um, some insights will be so 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 valuable you know they can they can do tangible things on the course they can do tangible things off the course and where you've got a product to use so much easier if it's something like um i have to give my hats off to hsbc for example who are a partner at wimbledon uh if you're ever lucky enough to be walking into wimbledon you will see out on the the fields on the opposite side of um of Wimbledon 
they'll set up a court uh, for fans and you can get the chance to play against, you know, Judy Murray or uh, Tim Henman, who are HSBC um, ambassadors, I think. So, you know, there are ways of even being a, a bank or a corporate brand to, to bring your brand to life and to give you an experience that will give you a, um, you know, a good feel. And banks are very good at it, just like having car keys. If you go to major events, you know, if you're an American Express card holder at some of these big events, I know in the US, you, you turn up, you show your, your American Express and that gets you through into a, to a separate area that gives you hospitality or extra viewing or to hear a player once they've come off the course, give an interview, etc. So live brand experiences are just going to get bigger and bigger and especially in this post C uh, experience because that's what what fans want to see they want to hear and see more from the players and the athletes themselves absolutely yeah and I uh, can get totally on board with that um, and I, I, I totally agree with you the, um, the, the brands and rights holders in the states seem to do these things a little bit better and I, I believe that um, that kind of value-add proposition from from a brand to the fan also benefits the event. So that's a great example of the American Express. You know, you, you rock up, you show your, your Amex and it allows you to go into a, uh, a tent maybe where, where the normal fan isn't allowed to go. So not only does your customer um, loyalty uh, program get a big boost and they're very happy that they can do this every year. Uh, there's also the wandering eye factor of every other human being that's there thinking, I want to be in that tent next year and I want to get Ricky Fowler's autograph. I need to get an American Express to do so. And that puts me in a different social bracket mentally as well. And I think those sorts of things we haven't conned on to, or if we have, we're just not very good at it here yet. Um, or it might be just the kind of way where I try to be a little bit more inclusive about things. But um, I agree with you. I think those are the sorts of things that brands will be looking to do much more next year. And also, I mean, that really comes down to the fact, and we've seen it this year without any fans, you realize actually the true value of, a, of you know, one unit of a fan is worth an awful lot. And when they're not there, uh, you know, you just really see the true value of people at events. And we've, I imagine we've all taken that for granted for years. Yeah, 100%. I mean, not just, you know, there's so many factors of the fan, um, you know, take, I don't know, Olympics, uh, the opening ceremony, you can only fit 80,000 people, let's say, into an opening ceremony for the Olympics. Uh, but how many eyeballs will be on that? You know, millions, billions around the world with NBC and, and coverage, etc. So, you know, in quantity numbers, of course, it's that's a tiny fraction. But what does that fan in that stadium give you? It gives you energy, it gives you noise, it gives you atmosphere. Uh, and, you know, all of those things you, you can't make. I mean, the Premier League here in the UK has, I think, done a great job of um, trying to play out. Uh, I've seen and heard myself watching some of those matches where they're playing out fan noise through the, the in-stadia, uh, which obviously isn't the real thing and isn't, you know, pushing those fans, um, or sorry, those players, uh, perhaps as the real fans might have done between the away or the, the home goal end. But, you know, at least it's doing something. Just, just to go back to that American Express example, and again, they're getting great coverage out of this. Um, if they, there are no fans who can go in and show their American Express card, the challenge is, well, how do, how do those brands, coming back to your original question, still connect with uh, their customers? And the answer to that is they've got to be innovative. So um, I am an Amex um, cardholder. I know myself and I'm sure everyone pretty much will have some type of credit card. So the way around that perhaps might be to work with the rights holder to get you access to those athletes or to a special viewing point or whatever it might be at the event and then to broadcast that exclusively to your, in this case, cardholders on perhaps the American Express um, website. So when you log in to your card to see your statement or to see the offers or whatever it might be, 
you could log in and there would be a um, some downloads there or perhaps a screen that would link you to interviews with your favorite whatever it might be tennis players um, yeah. you know soccer players etc so innovation is going to come to the fore um, there's no question about that and then the the next point on that is also the role that the media play um, so I'm sure uh, you and many others of the listeners will have listened in and watched the last dance i hadn't uh, appreciated the nuances of uh, of basketball even though our our head office is in chicago so i'm now a, a very different viewer and thinker of the chicago bulls um but uh, i hadn't realized that the media had this incredible access where they go into the change rooms before games to to talk and meet with the basketball players written media as well as tv media and i can't imagine that happening in say a premiership uh, football changing room or a, a rugby um england changing room you know a couple of hours beforehand with media going into the down the tunnel into the change rooms but what a great thing that would be imagine the sound bites we would get or imagine the commentary we would get so i really hope that something like uh, as simple as just the last dance coming out and what other sports have done around the world might lead to seeds of ideas to our own sports in our own countries it would be great personally for me to as uh, someone who works closely with the media to see that those sorts of new access being allowed by the rights holders and by the teams to open up those games you know the all or nothing series that have been out on Amazon, Amazon Prime, they've been fantastic. We'll just take that to another step, make it happen on, on game days. That would be you know, a real game changer for fans and fan experience. Yeah, and it's true. It's, um, I mean, the American uh, sport immediate dynamic has always been way more authentic. I mean, if you're anything like I am and sort of consume most sports, um, you know, the NFL for years have been producing first-class documentaries uh, america's game is fantastic i mean the america's game generally features three players from a super bowl winning team talking to a camera but all of the sound bites that come out are from mic'd up or from from people getting interviewed in locker rooms before and after the games now i mean this this really stems from from the the philosophy of an american paying public demanding that they have access to the thing that they're paying for the, you know the professional athletes' wages are paid for by by the spectator, and therefore they demand a better product experience. We for years have been slightly hoodwinked with that. I think years ago, you know, my dad and so I would say, oh, you know, I used to see the players down the pub after the match and all of that. So we were really close to them. And then you know, since the Premier era has come in and the the media professionalism has taken over, we don't really get the real player. I mean, I was even even looking at some old. You know, I say old, I mean, like early to mid 2000s interviews with Keane and Vieira, even the cameras in the tunnel showing them jostling about a bit. Those those things seem to have gone a bit in the age of, of <laughs> robot professionals who, you know, don't say anything wrong or, or don't put a foot out of, uh, of step. And that is a shame, but I, I'm with you. I, I think that those things will come to the fore now as... As also, by the way, like the, the fan slash consumer who's forced to stay at home now and can't go to the games. I mean, the amount of money you have to pay for a Sky subscription, you, you want to get something out of it now that's a little bit uh, more than you got before. So um, I'm with you. Look, we're, we're getting close to our time limit. I just wanted to quickly finish with, with you know, your, your personal gut feelings on next year and, um, you know, what we can expect, assuming that, uh, let, let's all hope there's no second wave or anything else that comes along to rock the boat. How do you think the summer, you know, specifically the UK summer, which is now going to be chocked full of events, including the Euros, the Olympics, obviously there were this year, but, you know, these events are making a comeback. Wimbledon, Queen's Tennis, the Open Golf, uh, Racing League even. I mean, all of these events are, are going to be jostling for position. How, how do you see that panning out? I mean, is it, is it a, a good thing or is it going to be a challenge for these right uh, Well, in a word, I am super excited about 2021 and I can't <laughs> wait for January the 1st. Yeah, um, I think it's going to be a, a 
like you say, a packed 2021. There's no doubt of that. It's going to be probably our biggest year of sport ever. And if, as I say, the predictions of the Ryder Cup moving uh, to next year do come to fruition, it'll be uh, Olympics, as you say, Wimbledon coming back, the Open staging its 149th at Royal St George's, uh, the Euros uh, and Ryder Cup. I mean, what a sporting bonanza. Plus, uh, the British Lions are on tour in, in South Africa next year too. So, what a summer of sport, let alone um, some of the other big things like cricket with the 100, um, which got delayed this year, that coming through next year. I mean, it really is a bonanza of sports. So as a sports marketing agency, can't wait for that to come back. Can't wait to get our teeth into um, helping brands and uh, rights holders uh, to, 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 you know, to come back with a bring and, and as innovatively uh, and as successfully as possible. All of that said, there will be challenges. So there will be challenges on uh, financial, you know, not everyone will be able to go to a Ryder Cup and to go to a British Lions, for example, or to go to, you know, a Silverstone Grand Prix and one other big blockbuster event, a Euros, let's say. So there's definitely going to be some selection from a fan and from a corporate on the volume and how many events they can go to and attend. There will definitely be uh, some balance on how much you consume. You know, my poor wife already has to put up with me watching uh, New Zealand rugby on Saturday mornings. And now Premiership rugby is uh, only a few weeks or six weeks or so away coming back. So there'll be, you know, wall to wall rugby back here, let alone all the other sports. So it will be it will be a, a consumer bonanza but that will have a challenge too and the final part of that i think is going to be on the broadcasters so there's only going to be so much space on the tv big tv channels for the big events and i think that's going to mean that some events that have had tv in the past will not be able to hang on to that because those big events will will obviously take take precedence so there could be some events who've traditionally enjoyed, I don't know, um, terrestrial coverage, let's say, or some big um, sky um, type channel coverage as well, that might lose their, their TV coverage just because of the, the big events taking over in 2021. And then therefore the knock on to that is if you don't have the TV, you can't get the same sponsors or sponsorship. Uh, incomes because they're not balanced out and if you don't have the same sponsors and sponsorship income you then can't attract the same athletes because you're not able to put on the same prize money and so it trickles down so I'm just airing a hand of caution that some of the smaller tier two-ish events might just be compromised a little in 2021 and we already know that our sporting calendar is is pretty busy, probably too busy. Um, that's one thing we've probably learnt. Uh, just even looking at our own horse racing industry, you know, if there are whatever there are, 59 or so race courses, is that too many race courses? Are there too many horse races happening on consecutive weekends, consecutive days, consecutive TV channels? So I think 2021 will also be a rebalance of some of the the volume of live sports and some of the volume of live sports on TV. So that's, that's my mini crystal ball for next year. Well, and it's a pretty good one. Um, and I'll have my crystal ball, eight ball, dice, tarot, and anything else I can get my hands on. And I'm going to doctor them all so they come up good. Um, well, look, thanks for joining us. We could probably talk about this all day, you and I, and maybe when the pubs are open again, we can do just that. Um, but it's been good hearing from someone at the coalface of it and also hearing that there's, um, there's a positive way of looking at this. And frankly, whether it's positive or not, I think it's going to force um, a lot of us in, in this industry to look at things 
through a different lens and um, you know we barely scratched the surface on that and maybe uh come september october time we can do this again and see how those uh events have panned out for for revolution and yourself um and that'd be fun um but thanks man um got anything planned for today anything exciting um no uh other than a schedule of zoom calls uh from here and uh in the us so yep my digital experience will continue as i gaze across the south downs but also gaze to my uh my triple screen in fact my quadruple screens i've got two computer screens i've got an ipad and my iphone so i feel like i'm in a small airplane <laughs> or um, IT center, but uh, that's that's the way, <laughs> that's the that's way it. we are at the moment. So um, um, one thing, yeah, of course, anyway, really good to catch up. Yeah, so just before you go, one thing we do ask everyone that comes on, and this is a social, uh, well, more, sorry, more of a, a psychological profiling question is, what is your favorite type of dog? Oh, um, that's easy, it's a Cocker Spaniel. Interesting. And, um, mostly because we've had the most amazing Cocker Spaniel. But do you know, here's a question back to you, why a um, why a Spaniel is called a working Cocker Spaniel? Uh, I, I, <laughs> I could probably throw a number of suggestions that would all be wrong, so why don't you just give, give us the right answer? Well, I hope I'm right in saying this, but um, they were used because they got pretty short legs and pretty short hair to uh, go into the really, really dense, thistly, brambly bushes to make the woodcock bird mm -hmm. um, fly up into the air before sadly being shot down. So um, yeah, something to do with their short hair and to get the, the woodcock bird up. But um, anyway, there you go. Interesting. That's my feedback for the day on working cocker spaniels. Right. Okay. Um, well, look. Thanks again, and uh, I'm sure we'll catch up soon. For for the the listeners um, out there, um, we've got some more guests uh, coming up next week. Keep an eye out for who that is on the socials. And uh, uh, if you are listening on a Friday, enjoy your weekend. If any other time, enjoy whatever day of the week it is. Thanks a lot.